Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. It's me. You're listening to episode number 82, Never Give Up on Yourself, The Journey of Learning Our Own Self-Worth. In this episode, I get to talk with Marty Bruning. Marty has spent the last 20 plus years exploring various forms of personal growth and healing and believes strongly that women supporting other women is essential to restoring balance in our changing world. A key component to healing is recognizing that our worth is inherent. No matter our station in life, paycheck, relationship, or family status, number of friends, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, or number on a scale. Marty moved to Colorado in 1995 from Texas at the age of 18 and is now a wife to Josh and mom to nine-year-old Amara. She telecommutes for a large nonprofit research institute as a proposal manager. She received her bachelor's in journalism from Colorado State University, has taught indoor cycling for 15 years, and leads virtual meditation groups for her coworkers. She is also a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. In this episode, we talk a lot about Marty's history with alcohol abuse and eating and body issues, as well as her divorce. We talk through her road to recovery and journey to learning her own worth. Marty has a powerful story that she vulnerably shares with us, which of course is the very best kind of sharing. I have no doubt that it will be helpful for those of you who are listening. So here we go. Let's dive in. Here's my interview with Marty. Welcome to this episode of the We Podcast. I'm very excited to have the amazing Marty Bruning here with me today. We are going to have an amazing conversation that I just have a feeling is going to be vulnerable and just so helpful for so many people out there that need to hear this message. So thank you so much, Marty, for being here with me today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah. Yay. I'm excited for you to share. It sounds like you have a pretty amazing story and have 
come through quite a lot in your journey. And I think that, you know, that's the reason for this podcast is to be able to share that stuff because so often people keep things secret, then they feel like they're going through things alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really just important to be able to own our story and, and then to be able to share our story. So you are a writer for the We Spot blog, which yep. is how I've met you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is amazing. And I'm excited to get to know you even better. Yes, absolutely. I love being able to write again. Um, I've only written a few blogs, I think, for the Wii Spot so far, but it's already been such a cathartic, enjoyable experience for me. So it's, it's been an awesome experience so far. Good. Awesome. I love that. All right. Well, why don't we dive in? It sounds like, well, let's go back. Let's go back to the, the earliest point that you feel is the most important place to start. Okay, sure. Yeah. When I was kind of thinking about what are some of the key points or messages or experiences of my life that I I wanted to to talk about. You know, one of the main things that I really wanted to talk about is kind of the journey of learning uh, my own self-worth. And I guess some kids are are, uh, blessed with uh, kind of having that instilled at them from an early age, but I was not one of them. And so I've had to work pretty hard over the course of my life to uh, carve that out for myself. And so the earliest parts of my memory that that kind of have led to me needing to even make that part of my journey were certainly like elementary school age years. I I grew up in a household. My, My parents were married. They are still married. I'm oldest of two kids. I have a younger brother, but that the house I grew up in was, no one was really allowed to share their true emotions. Um, it, it, we knew as children without consciously knowing that like stuff wasn't right. Like that there was unhappiness. There was just, just underlying issues going on with my parents. And that led to this, just the sense that putting on appearances of things being okay, but yet knowing that things really weren't okay was kind of how I was supposed to operate. And as a young kid, that's super confusing. And also I think has turned turned into not trusting my own feelings. Because as a kid, when you have just normal human emotions of sadness or anger or frustration or, or even the good emotions of like a lot of excitement or joy, was kind of led to believe that, you know, tamp it down, control those, don't show those. We need to look like a family that lives in a nice house, drives nice cars, wears the nicest clothes, goes to church diligently every Sunday, and God forbid anybody know what's really happening over here. Yeah, so um, I remember being told starting back in my childhood and all the way through probably till up just to a few years ago that I had no coping skills. And I really took that to heart and thought, gosh, I, I must not know how to do this life right. I must not know how to like handle these big feelings I'm having. And so Early on as a child, I learned that one of the ways to shove those feelings aside and and kind of numb out was with food. And um, that has kicked off a very long battle with 
food addiction and binge eating um, and some restricting in there and a whole lot of body image stuff. And I'm 42 now and definitely still dealing with all of that. So that that's that's kind of the, the been the big work of my life is to figure out how to undo all of those incorrect messages that I was getting as a kid and, and all of the ways that I've tried to try to handle that throughout my life. Yeah, I can really identify with that. Um, having a very similar upbringing Mm. and, you know, yeah, you look pretty, you keep your mouth shut and you, uh, (laughs) anything outside of that is really not acceptable. Right. That's, and it's very damaging. Yeah. It it was an interesting place to be in as a, and now I have a 10 year old daughter of my own. (laughs) I look at her and I'm like, Gosh, how you know? I feel I feel for the ten-year-old me um, and what I was going through, but not like consciously knowing I was going through it. So it's a really difficult position to put put little kids in. Yeah, and not to take this uh, conversation down that path, but I think uh, it's super important as parents now because I I feel the same. I look at my kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was fending for myself at that age, or I can't believe I was doing this at that age. It's amazing. Like the, the perspective you have (laughs) now looking back. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just how important it is to encourage the expression of emotion and feeling, but I'm interested to know what you mean about the no coping skills. Like, was that a kind of a, a manipulation to get you to be quiet or because we do need coping skills, but tell me more about how that was used for you. Okay, right, yeah. You know, I heard my mother say that often to my father as well, and and so I think a lot of that possibly was an, an unconscious manipulation on on her part, because what was really happening is that myself and my father and we were expressing normal human emotions. You know, if there was a situation that we, that I was being put in, like I was grounded if I got less than A's, I wasn't allowed to see my friends or, you know, I was upset about something as kids get upset, you know, as is a normal human emotion. Mm -hmm. I think it made my mother very uncomfortable to see any sort of outburst of a strong emotion. And so her way of tamping that down was, you know, saying, you guys need to learn better coping skills when it was really basically saying, I'm uncomfortable with this show of emotion, Mm -hmm. this show of human emotion. And so her term of coping skills, I don't think is correct. I think I have excellent coping skills. And it took me a very, very long time to redefine that for me and realize that that was wrong. That was the wrong assessment of me. I think I have excellent coping skills. I think I have better coping skills than the person who was telling me I wasn't having coping skills mm-hmm. um, because that her, her way of coping was to ignore. And, and so I think it was a way of, of protecting herself from having to look at what was really happening and the emotions of her, of the people around her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say all this, now as a as a 40 year old a 42 year old woman knowing that she was absolutely doing the best that she could with what she had at the time like she was going through a shitty marriage and and not feeling confident about herself and not having control over 
many aspects of her own life. And so it got turned into kind of, you know, you control what you can control when so much is out of control. And, and I happened to be the thing that she controlled at the time. So I think that, I think the coping skills was her way of voicing her uncomfortableness, but it honestly didn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with what I was capable of. Thanks, sir. I I like that. I I think it's important to clarify because a lot of times people may think you don't have coping skills when you actually are dealing with the issue (laughs) and not not avoiding it because Mm -hmm. avoidance is is not a coping skill. No, and I've heard a term recently that um, I find super interesting. Um, have you heard of this term called toxic positivity? Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I heard that term and I was like, oh yeah, because, you know, and I, I certainly the family, my family of origin, as well as, you know, other friends and family that I, that I am close to, I see this still where it's like, you know, everything's fine. We don't, we don't, we wouldn't dare talk about the struggles or the feelings that are uncomfortable or hard. We, we need to like, and they got kind of go there under the guise of, well, we don't want to air our dirty laundry or, you know, or something like that. And, and certainly that's a fine line, but being overly positive, putting on a brave face, making those appearances look a certain way is a form of manipulation and it's not truthful. Yes. And um, I have found that in a tactful way, I can be truthful with people and still and be true to myself. And that is the way that I've been trying to navigate my life over the last couple decades worth of work of trying to kind of come out of that being locked into this this unhealthy way of coping into what what truly is a healthy way of of managing feelings. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. I am pretty passionate about uh, toxic positivity. I think it happens a lot now in the coaching field. Um, I think there's a lot of, I worked under a mentor for a while who was very much that way. And I saw how damaging it was to so many people. It's interesting because my mom was also that way. So then it's funny how we recreate these patterns, right? Then I ended up working with a mentor that was that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you know what they say, they give, you know, the universe gives us those same people over and over till we learn (laughs) what we need to learn. (laughs) Exactly. Dang it. I, hopefully I learned, uh, (laughs) but it's true. It's so manipulative because it creates this feeling of, well, I don't feel positive. Like I don't feel happy all the time. So what's wrong with me? And it it becomes very self-deprecating and it creates like this very isolating place to be for people. Exactly. I mean, it's teaching yourself to deny your feelings, that those aren't safe, those aren't trustworthy. And then if that's the model that children have, you know, if their parents are like that, this, then it teaches the children at an early age, oh, we don't trust I shouldn't trust my feelings. It's Mm -hmm. extremely difficult to develop into a confident adult when you have been raised to have this just like innate distrust of your own emotions. Totally. So yeah, definitely, definitely trying to not only undo that within myself, but also be a good model for my daughter. So if there's a positive thing, not in a toxic, positive way, but a positive silver lining 
to to being raised in the way that I was raised and having my eyes open to it is that it really informs how I parent now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, and I'm aware of, of, you know, when I kind of screw things up and I can go, you know, make it right with her. And hopefully I seem to be raising a kid who's comfortable expressing her feelings and she's allowed to cry and she's allowed to rage and she's allowed to, you know, talk things through. And so hopefully, hopefully that'll continue into teenagehood. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Really teaching that emotional intelligence rather than stuff everything down and pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know that for you and your story, you have a few situations where maybe you were doing the numbing, like you said, with the eating and, mm-hmm. um, and, and having an unhealthy relationship with food. And I feel like that's just so common for so many people, like finding different ways to numb those feelings because for so long they've been unacceptable. Yes, exactly. The food started really, really early um, when I was uh, in, you know, living with my parents as a, as an elementary school child, I was put on my first diet when I was still in elementary school. You know, I, I look back at pictures of myself now and there was no way that I would have called myself overweight, but Mm-hmm. I think I learned even in you know fourth or fifth grade that there was something wrong with my body. And so kind of having that sort of undercurrent of like something's up, I'm, I'm not up to muster here in the physical sense, as well as all these big emotions that I wasn't expressing, it certainly turned into uh, binging, food binging. I can recall often sneaking downstairs after everybody was asleep and, you know, knowing exactly which stairs wouldn't creak and how to avoid the ones that would so I could, you know, get the pack of cookies to bring back up. And I remember being at a birthday party when I was pretty young and everybody had their cake and there was a piece left and everybody else wanted to go back and play. But I'm sitting there, the last one at the table, staring at the cake, trying to figure out how I could get to it without, you know, embarrassing myself and just being consumed with the thoughts of needing to have all this extra food to put in my body. And then as I got older, you know, and, the, and my weight was affected by putting this, this extra food in my body, it, you know, then it, then it's the extra <laughs> added layer of, you know, the body image stuff. And, you know, when you've got all this worthiness issues already underlying it, you've got, you know, binge eating disorder, body image issues, and I'm still stuffing down the feelings and not really dealing with the reason I'm eating like this to begin with. So the good news is that in my early 20s, I I actually joined a support group for people with food issues, a 12-step program, and found a lot of relief there for a long time. I'm, I'm not a part of that group anymore. I realized that the rigidity of some of the rules associated with that way of living became more harmful than helpful at a certain point. But when I first got into it, what was magical about it is that I walked into these rooms of people who had the same issues as I did with food. And it was the first time I felt not alone. Like I wasn't the only person who was handling my big feelings with food. I thought I was the only one that I, there was, I was a screw up. Something was wrong with me. Again, I didn't have the right skills somehow. And I walked into this room of people who shared their truth 
and I had never heard other people share that deeply, that honestly, because again, you know, that wasn't okay with you. Know, that wasn't how I was raised. So not only am I hearing people have their same thoughts and, and behaviors around food as I did, but they just their thoughts and feelings about life and their emotions. And I can't tell you just how relieved um, I was after that first meeting of those groups. And I stayed there and I stayed in those rooms and I, and I learned and I worked the 12 steps multiple times and I became a sponsor and really had a lot of recovery around food um, for a while. But <laughs> then, you know, I was married in the midst of all of that and um, I got married pretty young. I got married when I was 18. I think in part just so I could sort of move on from my, my parents' house and, and try to strike out on my own. And we were married for about 13 years. So from 18 to my early 30s. And th things were going pretty great, I thought. And I kind of got this food thing under control and was feeling like I was building a pretty nice life for myself. When my then husband um, sat me down on New Year's Day of 2009 and told me he'd been having an affair and that this woman uh, that he'd been having an affair with was pregnant. Mm. Uh, yeah, that especially hurt because he and I had been trying to have kids for a few years and had been unsuccessful. So that was a huge blow, obviously, mm. and food was no longer enough to numb that level of pain. So I turned to alcohol after that. And so that was about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when alcohol became my drug of choice, so to speak, to deal with the big feelings. And, and that has led to uh, the last decade of struggling and having intermittent success with, uh, and then struggling again with alcohol as, as a way to not feel. And I'm still still working both those battles periodically with uh, both alcohol and food stuff, um, even though I've done a lot of recovery in various methods over the last decade or so. But yes, so the food, the food was the early part of my story and then the alcohol is the more recent part of my story. Mm -hmm. Wow, I can't even imagine, you know, your life turning upside down. So that, that must have been like, yeah, all of a sudden your, the rug was like ripped out from underneath you. Yep. That's exactly what that felt like. And, mm. and it brought back all of those, well, there's something wrong with me. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve good things. I don't deserve love. I must've done something wrong. You know, it just, it resurfaced all of those old feelings that I had worked so hard to manage and handle and work through over the last, you know, the previous 10 plus years. Uh, it just was all right back on my face in a really, really big way. I think it's such a good point too. I mean, you're, you're saying this is a continuing battle. Like this is something that you continue to work through. And mm -hmm. I think so many people think like our struggles have a beginning and an end. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. that they should just, we should work through them and they, they should just end. But that is so unrealistic. And I think what I see happening a lot of times too is they don't and they have to continue to work through them. And then that makes people feel even more like there's something wrong with them because they can't just come out the other side without having that continually 
being something they have to work on. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that there's no end <laughs> to this process. And yeah, I'm a very, you know, I'm a proud card carrying type A person who likes <laughs> defined boundaries and labels and deadlines and, uh, you know, a tangible process. I, I've built my career around tangible processes as a, as a, um, a project manager and a journalist. Mm -hmm. So the fact that recovery doesn't look like that, or at least hasn't looked like it for me, has been a big source of frustration. And, you know, it's something that I, that I continue to work on is giving myself the grace to, you know, have two, a two steps forward, one step back kind of path. Mm -hmm. And then to, and to talk about it, because you're right. I think so often we hear these stories of people who go through a struggle and then they come out the other side and voila, life is great. And Mm -hmm. That does happen. I've seen it, but I don't think it's the typical story. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to start more recently now starting to open up and talk about, Hey, I still have this food stuff. Hey, I still have this alcohol stuff. Hey, I still have this self-worth and body image battle a lot of the time, but I'm, but I'm going to keep working forward and I'm going to keep moving forward and I will keep working on this until the day I die if I have to, because you know, what's the alternative? Just you know, continuing to wallow and live in the past. Nope. No, thank you. I'm, I'm going to push forward. I think the thing that too is so hard with alcohol is that it's so socially acceptable. It's almost like, you know, uh, I used to drink way too much back in the day. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> what happened for me is as I got older, my body just, I got tired of feeling bad all the time. I just can't drink because it makes me feel terrible. But it's interesting because there are people in our lives where I feel like we don't get invited to things because we don't drink. Maybe mm -hmm. we're not considered fun if we <laughs> don't drink. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yes, so, I know what you mean. <laughs> so there's this whole other piece to it, too, that I think is makes alcohol so difficult to get away from or because you constantly it feels like have people trying to pull you back into that right yes I've heard it phrased that you know alcohol is the only drug you have to like make excuses to other people why you're not taking it yes <laughs> totally you know, no, one, no one's gonna question you like not snorting a line of cocaine anymore or or even cigarettes right like yeah. you know many years ago cigarettes were the you know even supposedly healthy and you know now I think people pretty universally look at cigarettes and go yeah that's not healthy and you know all of that but alcohol is a, a different story it's been even interesting to watch you know we're we're talking right now in the midst still of this quarantine and you know liquor stores are still open as an essential business and alcohol sales have gone up i think i've read like 400% oh and i get it oh i so don't get it and i don't fault those people and and mm -hmm. i'm still a little jealous of the people who can who can drink in a way to take a load off for a few hours and then go back to their normal lives but you know that wasn't me i don't like the word alcoholic I don't think that that is helpful. It's not even a phrase that's used in the medical community anymore. Um, alcoholic and alcoholism. It's been replaced with a phrase called alcohol use disorder, and it's a spectrum. And that makes a lot more sense to me mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a spectrum of people. And, and, and I think when I was younger and in my 20s, I was 
just a pretty much a regular drinker, take it or leave it, no big deal. But they say that the biggest indicator of whether or not you're, someone's going to find themselves on the higher end on that alcohol use disorder spectrum is trauma. And the more trauma of someone's life, the more chances they have to, to have their alcohol use go into dangerous territory. And that's definitely my story. Uh, you know, I used alcohol as medication. I used alcohol so I didn't have to feel Mm -hmm. the hurt and the anger and the distrust and how terrible I felt about myself, how much I really started to hate myself after a while. And then you put this substance into your body enough times it, with enough frequency and enough quantity that it changes your physical makeup, your chemical makeup. And so, you know, it's the equivalent of turning a cucumber cucumber into a pickle. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Sometimes I jokingly say, well, I've pickled myself a little bit here and, and you can't turn a pickle back into a cucumber. So, you know, I'm also not a person who likes to say forever. I, I also don't like the phrase one day at a time. So I'm somewhere in the middle. And that's another thing that's been a challenging part of my journey is because I am such a type A person that kind of likes to have a, a black and white, true and tried process put in front of me. Like, okay, here's your problem. Here's the manual of how to figure that out. And then you're done. And since that hasn't been my story with recovery, I've had to sort of create my own recovery patchwork. That's a little bit of 12-step meetings, um, although I have, I don't like a lot of the tenets of that, but there's also other groups, thankfully now, that are about female empowerment-centered recovery, which speaks a lot more to me. Um, exercise, meditation, I'm putting together my own program of things that work for me. It takes a little bit more time. I, sometimes I wish it was a little more straightforward, but mm -hmm. seems to be working so far. Yeah, really, I think, you know, what I'm hearing you saying is staying in a place of awareness, like mm -hmm. whatever that is that is currently happening in whatever season, being in a place of awareness of, okay, this is what I need to do right now to, to get myself through this, this thing, this struggle, whether it's food or alcohol or whatever is coming up, because I, I think it does for for most people continually evolve. Yes, we have to. I really believe that. You know, if I still believed all the things I believed when I was 20, I, I think I would feel rather stuck. So being open to trying new things and new ways of thinking and remaining flexible, um, you know, that's a challenge for me. I wouldn't, I, I bet yeah, anybody that knows me at all would probably not use the word easygoing and flexible <laughs> in their descriptions of me, but I'm really working on that because my rigidity and rules and, and all of that, those ways of kind of trying to control uh, things around me doesn't work. It, it it's backfired my way into, you know, multiple addictions. And so I'm, I'm learning that openness, flexibility, grace, and loving myself through these things is the only thing that's going to, is going to get me to a healthy other side. So good. <laughs> so let's, let's go back a little bit more to your story. I know there's a few other pieces that uh, we'd like to cover. So walk us through kind of what happened after you found out about your husband and kind of what's brought you to where you are now. 
Sure. Well, after he told me that he'd been having the affair and, and she was pregnant, we, we did not stay together very long. We, you know, filed for divorce and, and then, but then within a few months of, of that breaking up, I met a man named Josh, who is my husband now. And I have to say it's worked out really well, but I wouldn't recommend jumping into a new relationship three months after you break up with your husband, uh, your 13 year marriage. So it was a bumpy road there for those first few years really of trying to kind of navigate each other and, you know, me being very distrustful of myself and, and everything, but we have definitely come out the other side and, and are each other's biggest cheerleaders and biggest supporters. And pretty soon into our relationship, I found out I was pregnant, uh, which was a shock, mm. <laughs> of course. And uh, so now, yes, that's the 10-year-old daughter that I mentioned before. So she just turns 10 this week and is just wonderful. And, you know, we made the conscious decision to have, have one child. I did experience a lot of postpartum depression after having her. My lovely doctor, who I have been, been uh, my doctor since I was 18 and, and knew me through my first marriage and trying to get pregnant and then, you know, was the one who actually birthed my, birthed my child with me, had warned me that my history of depression and addiction, that pregnancy was probably going to be pretty difficult. And the pregnancy was fine, but the crash after giving birth was very difficult. And I did fall into very severe postpartum depression. And it took me a long time to come out of that. And so while I didn't drink any alcohol when I was pregnant, that was the one benefit is my, my body just didn't want it. That didn't take any effort whatsoever. But as soon as she was born um, and that depression came crashing in and the hormone crash, I, I just, that's really when a lot of the drinking kind of kind of took off, but I got help for the postpartum depression and Josh and I made the decision together that we were not going to have any more children and we didn't want to put either of ourselves in that position of having to go through that, that emotional turmoil again. So we've got our one beautiful daughter and she's awesome and we're awesome and you know we all have our things that we're working on, especially now that we're together 24 seven in this quarantine, but, but overall things are pretty great. Yeah, that does add a totally different spin, doesn't it? The quarantine. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be talking forever about how our relationships changed during the quarantine of 2020. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Yeah. We've all learned how to become teachers. And I think that we appreciate our teachers a heck of a lot more now. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good to hear. I, I think postpartum depression is another thing that people don't talk about. Yeah. It's another thing that holds a lot of shame for moms, I think, is the postpartum depression and something that I think a lot of people are afraid to admit. Yes. I, I Thankfully, I feel like more and more people are starting to talk about that um, and be really honest with how how ugly that can look. You know, when I was very newly pregnant, everybody's, you know, congratulating us and and talking about how great it is to have kids. And then uh, one of my sisters-in-law said something that really stuck with me. And she, at the time, it didn't make sense. But what she said was, well, don't be worried that if you once you have your kid, if you don't like her right away. And at the time I thought, 
that's a weird thing to tell somebody. <laughs> and then afterwards, gosh, I just hung onto, onto that. I'm like, remember what she said like this. Okay. So, so somebody else probably felt like this too. And she was one of the first people I reached out to when I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And, you know, so I actually make a point to say that to, uh, to, to pregnant people too. It's like, you know, if something feels off, you call me because, you know, having somebody to talk to, and I had a, a couple really awesome friends around that time too, that, that were spoke to me about their experience, not being so rosy either. And, and their issues with postpartum depression. And it really, really made me feel not alone. And, and I think that's so important for, for new moms. Yeah. I had it hit me much harder with my son than it did my daughter. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, my husband was like, didn't know what to do with me. I was so thankful for my girlfriends during that time. They can be true lifesavers. Yeah. Cause we get it right. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to explain it until you live it for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is really important in that reaching out part, like having to do that, having to reach out and say, this is what I'm going through right now. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and my daughter's pediatrician was also extremely key in me even recognizing what it is, what it was that I was going through. Cause it, you know, you, you just, you, if you're not aware of what this thing is and this is the first time you're a parent and you know, everyone just tells you, Oh, you're sleep deprived or you're, you know, it'll get better. You'll get used to it. And, and I'm not feeling better or used to it. We went to just one of those, early days checkups with the pediatrician and and she spent way more time with me than she did with my daughter. And she just kept looking into my eyes saying, you know, and how are you? And, and I told her how I was Mm -hmm. and, um, and she just gave me permission to stop breastfeeding because that was miserable. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of guilt about like, Oh, that's just one more thing I can't do. Right. You know, but Mm -hmm. it's a matter of, having a a sane mother or a breastfed kid, I'll take the same, I'll take the sane mother, you know, having those permissions to not necessarily follow the checklist of what a quote unquote good mother is supposed to be doing. um, That was so helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't really breastfeed either of my kids and I felt so guilty. Gosh, there's such that checklist. (laughs) <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> Unspoken, you know, crazy high standards we're supposed to accomplish, but nobody, nobody does, but it's back to that whole, like, but as long as it appears that we've got it together and we're, you know, doing all these things, then we can totally. check those things off. But I would much rather have an honest conversation than a, than a checklist conversation. Heck yeah. Yep. Social media, I think, really contributes to that in a lot of ways, too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 I don't have a lot of nice things to say about social media. <laughs> <laughs> I know there can be a lot of negatives, but I think there's also a lot of positives. I think um, it depends on on your mindset, just like all things. Like, are you going into it comparing yourself and looking at other people or how are you using it? I think is, is so important. 
Oh yeah, agreed. I I have basically culled my my two main social media accounts, my Instagram account and my Facebook account down to recovery groups. It is, and especially right now when um, we can't be around each other physically as much, I'm I am living on these online meetings and my and my group of sober friends and in recovery friends on the Facebook feeds and the Instagram posts, and it's it's say it's just it's wonderful so with that with books and podcasts and my recovery groups online um yeah so after the election of 2016 i i threw out a whole heck of a lot of crap and garbage on social media and really culled it down to what is going to bring me joy and and what's going to be helpful to me so i it's part of my recovery patchwork actually Mm. i choose to use my social media yeah i think that's huge People don't a lot of times realize they have a choice of what they see and what they don't and where they can focus. Mm -hmm. Got to have a filter when it comes to your mental health, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. So you said earlier uh, that you want to uh, really focus in on your journey of learning your own self-worth. And so I'd love for you to talk about that for a second and, you know, all the things you've shared with us about your journey and what you've come through. Uh, Do you have thoughts or advice to give about really honing into the self-worth, what has been helpful for you. I'd just love to bring us back to that. It is not easy. It was definitely not an easy thing to, to undo that many years of, of negative thinking about myself and not trusting my own feelings. So it's, you know, it's definitely started with learning to be honest in the words that I speak. You know, it was easy just to find myself in, you know, conversations with friends, just talking about opinions about just the most like innocuous thing and really not knowing how I felt about something. And, you know, if I opened my mouth, it was going to be what I thought they wanted to hear. So I know that's a very small thing, but that's where I had to start is making sure the words coming out of my mouth in any and all circumstances was my truth and not what I thought I wanted people to hear and, and being able, and then having people still want to be my friends when they, you know, I started opening up what I, you know, was quote unquote, the real me. And, and not only did people not get, you know, scared away, but it seems to attract more friends and, and friends that were willing to have those deeper conversations with me and, and not just stay on the surface and that sort of toxic positivity bubble mm-hmm. that drives me so crazy now. So I think just little practices, little practices to start building trust in myself, that whole piece of self-worth really to me is tied to, to self-trust, trusting my feelings, trusting my gut, my intuition, you know, not second guessing how I feel about something or, or a decision I need to make, that I'm going to be okay and that I can, I can trust myself. And those messages I heard of that I was doing things wrong or I was behaving wrongly or I was feeling wrongly, but those, those aren't true and they were never true and that I can trust myself now. So I think that the, those little tiny baby steps into instilling and believing my own my own gut instincts has, has probably been the, the biggest thing. And one of the strongest methods in which I've been able to cultivate that is through meditation. I've been a regular meditator for probably 20 so years. 
and all different styles and methods. Right now I am absolutely loving what's called binaural beats meditations. It is a, an audio meditation that is designed to um, calm brain waves. And I just find, uh, I've done a lot of studying about the brain with addiction and have learned that there's, you know, there's truly some chemical stuff going on in the brains of folks who struggle with addiction. And some of these meditations that use the brain waves have just been so helpful in calming any anxiety, um, reminding myself kind of that I am a part of this big universe, no matter what, like I, I belong here and I'm worthy to be here. So that's, that's just one, been one of the biggest, biggest helps to me over the years. Yeah, that's beautiful. You'll have to uh, share with me. Maybe I can put that in the show notes, like a link to to that because oh, I've yeah. never heard of it before. I'd love to know more about it. Absolutely. I it, It's just been a game changer for me. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. Well, this feels like a good transition into my questions. And so the first one is, what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? I think it's been never giving up. I've had a, a lot of slips and a lot of mistakes and a lot of trial and error um, over the years. Of, I've hurt a lot of people through things that I've done out of fear and anger. And then certainly through, you know, living through a couple of different addictions. And if I let any one of those mistakes or slip ups or times I fell down, you know, have it stop there, I don't know where I would be. So even though it's painful to pick yourself up and, and dust yourself off and try again, that's one thing that is the one consistent thing that I have done in this process throughout my life is I've never given up on myself. I just have this deep sense that I'm meant for something, something greater, something big. And the only way I'm going to get there is if I just continue to work on living a clear, healthy, confident life and, and let, let life and the universe guide me to where I'm supposed to go next. I think most of us, if we really listen to that, we know deep within ourselves that we are worthy or that, you know, we're meant for something bigger. I think Mm -hmm. it's a matter of listening to that and, and being able to lean into that. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you want to make sure that people know? I want to make sure that people know that every single individual on this planet is okay as they are, that we are all here because we're supposed to be here for some reason and that we are worthy and enough. Um, just because we are like, there's, I lived so many years and, and, st- and still, still working on this of basing my worthiness and my enoughness on what I'm accomplishing, what I'm doing, what I'm producing and kind of hustling for approval and love and worthiness and that none of that's necessary. Just existing is proof enough that we are worthy and, and enough. All right. So Marty, moving forward after listening to this podcast, I'm sure lots of people are going to want to connect with you. How can people find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, well, I am on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Marty is spelled M-A-R-T-I and Bruning is B-R-U-E-N-I-N-G. And I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
So I'd love to have hear from anybody or have questions or have some message exchanges. That'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. And then they can check out your, your articles on the We Spot also. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will have links to all of those things in the show notes just to make it easier for people to get in touch with you. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been just an amazing conversation. Thank you for sharing your heart and and your vulnerability and showing up in this way because I really believe that it helps other people show up in a truer way for themselves also. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Sarah. This was wonderful. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories, and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart, experiences, and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to thewespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The We Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.